Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast where we share stories about music from all over the world and explore a musical planet. Thank you very much for joining me today. So this podcast has only been available for a little over a week, but you may have already noticed that I've been concluding every episode of Travels in Music with the words, life is short. Now, I'm sure you already realize this fact. In fact, I think most of us recognize the brevity of life, but we still choose to ignore it all too often. Or at least I do. But earlier this year, I received a poignant reminder. Frank Sinatra Jr., his legendary father's only son and a talented performer himself, died suddenly in March at the age of 72. Just a few months before his death, I had the chance to interview Frank by phone for Pop Matters. When we spoke, Frank Jr. was kind, gracious, funny, and protective of his father's legacy, characteristics that he demonstrated with great class and dignity throughout his life. Although we spoke only once, I was saddened by his passing and reminded of how brief and precious our time spinning on this rock in the sky truly is. This episode of Travels in Music is dedicated to the memory of Frank Sinatra Jr. My guest today is a Frank Sinatra expert with a capital E. Chuck Granada is an author, archivist, record and radio producer, as well as the occasional co-host of Nancy Sinatra's serious radio program, Seriously Sinatra. Chuck has spent much of the past 15 years studying and preserving Sinatra's recorded legacy, and is the author of Sessions with Sinatra, Frank Sinatra and the Art of Recording. In today's episode of Travels in Music, we discuss the centennial of Sinatra's birth, what makes his music so enduring and special, and how Sinatra's connection to the state of New Jersey helped to make him the man he was. This conversation was recorded prior to the death of Frank Jr., but we also discussed what Frank Jr. told me was his father's greatest talent. It just might surprise you. Even if you're not a Sinatra fan, my guest possesses a rare talent for teaching people, people like me, how to listen to music to experience the most pleasure and understand and appreciate it even more. So I love talking with him. And although I must confess we get a little geeky or inside baseball in certain moments, I think you'll also enjoy sitting in on my conversation with Frank Sinatra expert, Chuck Granada. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, we just had 2015, the centennial of Sinatra's birth, and there was there was a lot of hoopla, it seems. You know what I mean? There's a lot of different events, um, different releases coming out. Are you are you at all surprised that the public is still so interested in Frank Sinatra after all these years? Not at all, because like any other classic style, the Sinatra style, whether it's his uh, incredible talent and vocal style, his uh, literal uh, style, cultural style, his his uh, persona, his his method of influencing fashion and uh, behavior in the fifties and sixties, and socialization, all of those things were were so impeccable 
and brilliant that it's not a surprise to me that they've survived and they've, you know, been embraced all these years later. What what originally drew you to Frank Sinatra? I mean, you've you've spent a great deal of your working life um, pursuing Sinatra related projects. What what was it about Sinatra that that drew you to him originally? Well, when I was very young, my mom had a diverse record collection that included a lot of classical records and some international music, some world music, and then a good, healthy dose of Sinatra albums. And for some reason, I was always drawn to vinyl and records from the time I was very young. So I, I literally played and played with those records uh, during my very formative years. And, and for some reason, I was attracted to the sound of that voice. I remember very clearly being about five, six, seven years old and uh, putting on one of the Columbia albums that she had and hearing Birth of the Blues. And that really had an impression on me. I don't know if it was the instrumental or, or just the, the energy uh, behind the whole song and the vocal. I, I just was attracted to this voice and this style of music. say some people long ago were searching for a different tune one that they could croon as only they can and then as I got a little older and began to play the drums and piano I gravitated towards the Sinatra Riddle albums, which I found to be uh, exciting and vibrant. And, and as a drummer, as a young drummer in his teens, uh, who loved that big band sound, it was like Nirvana. You know, when I heard Sinatra and Riddle through the albums uh, Swing and Affair and uh, Sinatra Swing in Session and Come Dance With Me with Billy May. I mean, those were just... Uh, really important milestone recordings in my musical development. Right, right. And and you you grew up in New Jersey, right? I did. Yes, yeah. Bloomfield, New Jersey. Tell me if this is inaccurate, but uh, I I haven't spent any time in New Jersey. But I have this idea of Sinatra being sort of like still kind of like a god, like almost like a mythical f figure in New Jersey. Is there any truth to that whatsoever? Like, do people still sort of revere Sinatra, particularly in New Jersey? Absolutely. Uh, you know, whenever people talk about music in New Jersey, the first three people they talk about are Frank Sinatra, Bruce Springsteen, and John Bon Jovi. So, and then, you know, after that, they, they mention uh, Count Basie, which is interesting. You know, people mm. seem to know Count Basie and, of course, Les Paul. But, yes, Sinatra is, I would say, New Jersey's favorite entertainment son. Still, after all these years, well, that's Absolutely. great. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there, if you if you consider all of the events worldwide of the past year, especially in December uh, for Frank Sinatra's centennial, you look at Hoboken and New Jersey, and and there were quite a few events here that really capitalized on Sinatra being a Jersey boy. Hmm. 
the original Jersey Boy, really. Do you think there was something special? I mean, obviously, I guess there was, but I mean, that that New Jersey itself produced Frank Sinatra. You know, like, I feel like there's a reason he Ohio didn't produce, produce Frank Sinatra. California didn't. I feel like there's something about New Jersey that sort of implanted itself on Sinatra from a young age. Do you think, do you think there's any truth to that? Oh, absolutely. You know, there is definitely a different vibe on the East Coast. And if anyone is familiar with jazz music, you know, there's always been this, this friendly rivalry and, and comparison between East Coast jazz and West Coast jazz. Well, the same thing really happened in the early 40s, late 30s and early 40s with the big band scene. The big band scene, even though those bands traveled across the country, the big band scene was primarily rooted in the New York area. So a lot of the bands uh, <clears throat> really formed and 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 began right here in in the the 15 mile radius around New Jersey you know which includes Manhattan so i would say that that had a, a big effect because frank sinatra really used to say uh his career started when he took that 4 cent ferry ride from hoboken to new york and of course you know new jersey is uh unique in that um you know people from new jersey tend to be more forward have uh, a little brashness. And I think that really serves Sinatra well. You know, he came from Hoboken. And while it, it wasn't an inner city, as we might think of an inner city today, uh, it was still a very blue collar uh, city. And, you know, he, he had to struggle for position there. So I think that whole idea of coming up and being streetwise and, and, you know, basically living in the city that, that is portrayed and on the waterfront gave him the tools to, to, to really, you know, be scrappy enough to fight for what he wanted, which was this great career. You know, he said early on that he was going to be the greatest singer that ever lived and he became that person. So I think New Jersey had a lot to do with it the whole attitude of the East coast, the fact that that music scene that he was trying to uh, break into was really rooted in this area that had a lot to do with it. In 2003, you published a really interesting book called sessions with Sinatra, Frank Sinatra and the art of recording. Yes. And I think it's, it's difficult for a lot of um, younger people say people in the twenties and thirties, people like me um, who grew up with, with pro tools and multi-track recording and, you know, these, incredibly sophisticated recording studios, recording technology. I think it's it's sometimes difficult for us to get a handle on what it was actually like in the studio when Sinatra was making some of these amazing recordings. I think it's difficult for us to really understand that whole scene. So take me, if you would, through a typical Sinatra recording session. It would generally be him recording with a live orchestra, right? Right up until the end of his career. Yes, Yes, and, and you really hit on the right word, and that is live. The big difference between even a big band recording today and in Sinatra's heyday in the mid-50s at Capitol Records is that back then, everything was done live to tape or live to disc. So there's a certain... Uh, spontaneity 
and, and energy to those recordings because you have everyone in the studio playing off of each other. You know, I like to, to use the example, if you went to a nightclub, you know, how would you feel if there were a tape playing and you just had um, actors, you know, sitting behind the instruments pretending to play? you know, almost like sinking to the tape. Well, that, that would not be a great experience. You know, the whole thrill of a live musical performance is seeing the players play off of each other. And that's really what makes those recordings uh, from the 1940s, 1950s, and early 1960s so special, is the fact that the guys in the band were in the studio Frank did not like to stay in a, in a separate booth per se, where, uh, you know, he would be isolated from the orchestra. He liked to be right out on the floor in the studio so that he could feel the rhythm section. He could feel the bass. He could have the horns coming at him. And, um, and it really created uh, a wonderful uh, vibrancy that, that, that you can feel today. When you listen to those records, they're unique. And it wasn't just Frank that was recording that way. That's the way everyone recorded back then. But Frank, of course, you know, really, really used the studio to its greatest advantage. He knew how to play the microphone. He knew that the microphone was his instrument. And he knew that being amongst the band and right in the swirl and the center of activity and, and, and having the music rush over him you know, gave him a lift vocally and it, it let him, you know, play right off of that sound. And, uh, and I don't think there's anything that can replace that. And it, it's, it's simply live recording. And, and two things that, that strike me as particularly amazing when you're listening to these recordings, say something like, uh, I've got you under my skin, for example, one is that's a live take, right? That's one one take and it's live. You know what I mean? The, the band is playing off each other. Frank's vocals are right in the sweet spot. Everything just works. It's such a magic, magical recording. And that's one take, one live take. And the second thing is, is these engineers must have been just unreal to, to, because these recordings, you know, 50, 60 years old, they still sound so, so, so good. You listen to them on a good stereo. It's like you're in Capitol, Capitol Studios. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's really amazing. Yeah, it really is. Well, you know, part of that, and I, I, this is what I try to emphasize in my book, I, I really approach that project, Sessions with Sinatra, as an opportunity to marry the art and science of recording. The art, of course, being uh, the musicianship and Sinatra's vocal brilliance and the arranger's uh, role and contribution to, to that sound. And at the same time, the science of recording and how it, it really helps Sinatra express his artistry so beautifully. So when you listen to those recordings, even the ones from the 40s uh, that were recorded on disc sound really, really good. And I've worked very hard to uh, remaster and restore a lot of those disc recordings over the past 23 years at Columbia Records. But of course, once magnetic tape came into the studio and recording equipment, uh, re tape recorders became uh, more refined, the sound improved. There's greater clarity, there's greater depth, there's greater dynamic range. You can hear a lot more detail 
especially in Sinatra's vocal. So you're correct. When you listen to those recordings, I, I, I sometimes have to really uh, marvel because it is almost like they could have been recorded last week. Yeah. In terms of the sonics, you hear this wonderful, rich bass sound and this beautifully clear treble, very transparent, but still very detailed. So technically, they're wonderful. And I kind of explain why in my book, because it's a combination of the microphones that were used and the fact that they began to use um, a better microphones, condenser microphones in the 50s, the recording tape, then stereo came in and supplanted mono recording. And at the same time, the engineers were fabulous. These are people who had great ears, who just came into a studio and could listen to the room and know exactly where to place the microphones to get the best sound and the leakage, you know, between microphones where, you know, the, the, the microphone that's pointed at the saxes might also be picking up a little bit of the sound from, from the trombones. And, you know, that's like all part of that, that whole mix that makes those records sound so great. And um, a lot of those engineers were not really trained. They didn't go to school for this. Well, schools for, for recording engineering probably didn't exist back then, right? They really didn't. No, it, it was basically um, apprenticeships. And in a lot of cases, uh, some of the best engineers came from doing um, audio work in the military. So, you know, very, very interesting evolution when you look at how recording engineers um, came into the scene in the 40s, 50s, and, and early 60s, and how kids today are going to school, not just for music and performance, but for the recording arts and for engineering and production. It's, it's really an interesting uh, progression. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Just, just to keep on this very, very nerdy uh, train of thought, because I love this stuff. Last time I was talking to you, I remember we were talking about Nelson Riddle, um, who many people regard as Sinatra's greatest collaborator, the arranger Nelson Riddle. I really, really love Gordon Jenkins' uh, arrangements with Sinatra. I know they're a little more traditional and they're not quite as innovative as Nelson Riddle. Tell me exactly what made Nelson Riddle so great in your, in your view. Well, the first thing that I would uh, say about Nelson is that he had such great musical perception. Nelson is one of those arrangers that is so facile and so versatile, he could write equally well for a full string orchestra or a string quartet as he could for a big band. And, and that was unusual. You know, uh, Billy May could write beautifully for strings, but he almost always wrote for a big band with a, a very, you know, distinctive sound, that, that brass, that fat brass sound, the slurping saxes, uh, the colorful and fun musical inflections, the tuba, uh, the muted trumpet doing some, you know, some some funky sounds, which were really cool, some fun sounds. It, it was almost like a circus atmosphere in Billy's arrangements. Nelson wrote these wonderful big band charts that were so sophisticated and so detailed. If you listen to a Nelson Riddle chart and you compare it to, uh, let's say, an arrangement by um, 
any of the uh, most of the other guys of the 40s and 50s i won't say everyone but you know most arrangers allowed the vocalist to carry the melody and they just created a pad in between when the vocalist wasn't singing and usually that pad is not particularly melodic and not especially memorable and it's not really complex or complicated nelson on the other hand if you listen to those arrangements and you kind of tune out Frank's vocal. If you can mentally tune the vocal out and just really concentrate on the music behind him, you will hear some extraordinarily complex and rhythmically amazing sounds. Uh, Nelson did not skimp on, on, on doing uh, the writing and, and, and fleshing out those arrangements just because Frank was singing. To the contrary, when you listen to what's happening behind the vocal, it's really amazing because there's this whole other sound going on. And when I say sound, it's, you know, most arrangements, the, the, the music kind of follows the melody when the vocalist is singing. With Nelson and with Billy, there are some really beautiful and, and wondrous things happening that are very different from the melodic line behind Frank's vocal. Um, I'll give you an example. When you listen to I've Got You Under My Skin, there's all kinds of rhythmic things happening while Sinatra's, you know, singing and floating above this beautiful pad of strings, which was, you know, one of Nelson's trademarks. He would combine these, these really beautiful high strings um, that would float along with the big band, with the brass and and, and the woodwinds and, and the vocal and everything else. And and whatever he wrote for all those instruments, even if it were behind a vocal, was always uh, very sophisticated and, and very, um, how can I say, uh, rhythmic and, and unusual. And it's something that can stand on its own. It's really uh, what I'm trying to get at. You know, if you just listened to the arrangement without the vocal, you would say, wow, that's a really great musician uh, doing this work. And, and, and I think that that really is what kind of gives the, the, those really beautiful complex layers to Sinatra's recordings. The fact that you had a Nelson Riddle or a Billy May or a Don Costa who could write these, you know, beautiful figures, not just around the vocal, but behind the vocal. And that's unusual. And to do all of that while still, um, keeping the focus on voice, right? Like to have these amazing arrangements, these ama amazing musical things going on in the background while still, you know, maintaining focus where it needs to be, which is on Sinatra. I mean, that's most impressive. It's never overbearing, if you know what I mean. Right. Correct. I mean, and that, that's the genius of the Nelson Riddles, the Billy Mays, the Don Costas. I think even the Gordon Jenkins, which we'll discuss, I believe, momentarily. But you know, one of the great examples that I love is if you listen to um, Frank's recording of Brazil, uh, which was arranged, arranged by Billy May for the Come Fly With Me album, and you listen to what's happening behind Frank's vocal, you hear these amazing, amazing textures and rhythms. Most people wouldn't ever hear them because they, they focus on the melody that the vocalist is singing. But, but it's well worth 
the time to kind of listen to that two or three times and just listen for what's happening behind the vocal. It really is a, a lesson or an exercise in what great arranging and orchestrating is. Now, when twilight dims the sky above, recalling thrills of our love, there's one thing I'm certain of, return, I will, to old Brazil. Well, let's let's talk about Gordon Jenkins for a moment. I I, I love Gordon Jenkins, um, and I I particularly love his album that he did with Harry Nilsson. Not sure if you're familiar with it. It's called A Little Touch of Schmilson in the Night. He arranged that album in 1973, I believe, and it's it's just gorgeous. I think. Um, why don't you put Gordon Jenkins in this in the same category, or or the records that Sinatra made with Gordon Jenkins? Why are they not in the same category as uh, the ones he made with Nelson Riddle? Well, I do put them in the same category. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> no, personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I will tell you that um, by and large, and I say this after speaking with dozens of musicians, other arrangers, songwriters, unfortunately, the comparison that, that Gordon gets to Nelson and Billy May and Don Costa is is always negative and uh, a lot of musicians found his arrangements to be uh, i won't say boring but rather simple hmm. uh, and they they found the string sound that he favored to be monotonous now i have a very different view and it's a view that is shared by nancy sinatra she and i have spoken about this a lot both uh, personally and on the radio on her show together. And by the way, we both absolutely adore uh, a little touch of Schmilson in the night. Oh, great. And, and we play from it often because Nancy not only loves the album, but she was uh, a good friend of Harry Nilsson. So, you know, there's, there's a very personal connection here. It's, it's, it's the great music that Frank loved. It's Gordon, it's Harry, and they're so wonderful. Those arrangements are just beautiful. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply. But Nancy and I agree that Nel that uh, Gordon is unfairly compared to these other arrangers, and that Gordon is every bit as as brilliant as a Nelson Riddle or a Billy May, except he had a different style. And and you have to start with the premise that it was Frank Sinatra that selected Gordon Jenkins, so there had to be a lot to admire in Gordon's work if Frank Sinatra made it a point to work with him not once not twice but you know uh, on dozens of occasions in in various contexts on television 
um, in concerts in, in the 60s and, and uh, of course, on record. So when you listen to those albums, uh, Where Are You and No One Cares and September of My Years and She Shot Me Down, they have such a unique sound that is perfect for what Frank Sinatra wanted to achieve, which was a very dark, somber, uh, late night feel. He really wanted to communicate this, this idea of, of, you know, unimaginable sadness. And, and the best way to do that is with a lot of strings and very darkly orchestrated strings. And when I listen to Gordon Jenkins, I hear a whole different uh, texture than the music that, that Nelson created for Frank and, and all the other arrangers created for Frank. So I think Frank was looking for something that, that sharply contrasted all the other stuff that he was doing. That you mentioned, no one cares. That's a that's a tough one to listen to. I mean, it's a great album, but I think I think Sinatra called it his suicide album, if I'm not mistaken. That's that's a tough one to listen to. It is a devastating record. Uh, it's it's dark. It's desolate. It's tragic, and and all of that is conveyed. All of those feelings are conveyed without one visual. Right. Without one person narrating a story, it's all narrated and, and communicated through the lyrics and through the 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 setting that Gordon created with those arrangements, which I just think are brilliant. I I think No One Cares is in my top five favorite albums. I could listen to it over and over and over again and not ever get tired. I think it's it's just a perfect example of a, a true concept album. You mentioned your radio show with Nancy Sinatra. That, that just must be an absolute blast to work on. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a lucky guy, Zach. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, dreaming that I was, you know, the drummer on some of these records. I would put these records on when I was 15 years old and just wail away on the drums trying to duplicate what Alvin Stoller and Irv Kotler were doing because I thought it was so magnificent. And this music became part of my soul. And then I started to DJ and I wanted to go into radio and I wanted to spin Sinatra records. And I listened to Sid Mark, who I'm sure your listeners are familiar with because he's, he's, he's the top guy in the Sinatra game and he's been doing it for, for 60 years. And, you know, I wanted to be Sid Mark and, you know, for me to be able to befriend the Sinatra family start to interview and get to know the musicians and songwriters and recording engineers and arrangers who created these records that I grew up with that were such a big part of my life. Uh, and also then work with this family and write about his music and work on the radio with Nancy and be able to produce Sinatra reissues and, 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 and work with the original masters and be part of preserving the legacy is just a dream come true. Yeah, I, I, can, I can only imagine. I, you mentioned the Sinatra family. I actually talked to Frank Jr. about a month ago. And one of the questions I asked him, and I'm curious to get your response to it as well, is what, what made his dad's music so special? And Frank, Frank Jr. told me something interesting. He said simply that um, his dad's music talked to people. And I thought that was a really, really pithy and really good way to put it, actually. You know, it's simply, it, it, it reaches you on a level that goes beyond 
most other artists. You know, it's it's almost like he's in the room commiserating with you or, you know, dancing with you, whatever. It, it, it's He communicates on, on what feels like an often one-to-one level. But what's your take on that? Like what, if we had to boil it down, what makes Frank Sinatra so brilliant? Well, I don't think I could uh, say anything that's more perfect than what Frankie said is number one. And I can expound on it a little bit and, and give a little more uh, a dimension to that idea. Sure. Frank Sinatra came along at a moment when uh, the country and the world were, were in a fairly precarious state. It was World War II. There was a lot of uh, uh, concern about uh, what was going to happen in the world. It was a tenuous economic time, clearly a very emotionally difficult moment for our entire country. And Frank Sinatra came along at that moment and was this comforting voice. So he talked to people, as Frank said, uh, at a moment when they needed that comfort. Now, if you think about what musical expression is, it's simply conveying a message, whether it's uh, an instrumental, if you take a classical piece of music and there's, there's a story that the, the composer has based his or her piece on, and it's supposed to convey um, an atmosphere, an idea, and give you these pictures in your head, or it's a vocal where you are commiserating or being uh, buoyed up and, and, and encouraged by whatever the vocalist is singing. At the end of the day, Frank Sinatra's job, which he did spectacularly, was to take a lyric, which, which was designed to impart a certain emotion, make someone feel good, make someone feel the pain that someone else was feeling. Of course, these things were plot songs, a lot of the early ones for stage musicals and films, so they had a purpose, but they were able to survive outside of that because of Frank Sinatra being able to take that idea and convey that sentiment so convincingly through the lyric to his audience. And I I know that sounds like a complicated answer, and it is kind of complicated because the whole point of my book was to, to give people the idea that even though these records may be three and a half minutes, you can't even quantify the time and the effort and the thought that went into making them because it's all of the things we're talking about today. It's very conscientious decisions about what kind of mood do we want to set? Should we, should we include strings? Should it be all up-tempo? How can we change these arrangements to make these songs interesting and freshen them up? And then What's the vocal approach going to be? Is Sinatra going to try and, and, and bring someone, draw someone into his pain and into the, into the idea that everyone universally feels sadness and, and the loss of love? You know, this is all very um, elusive stuff that happens in the creative process, but there's so many different parts of the process. It's the orchestration, it's the vocalizing, it's the selecting songs, it's, it's, it's sometimes writing songs as 
Jimmy Van Usen and Sammy Kahn and Sammy Kahn and Julie Stein did for Frank. Specific songs to fit the mood, When No One Cares, uh, Only the Lonely. You know, those are songs that were custom written, Come Dance With Me, Come Fly With Me. They were custom written to convey a specific mood and a specific uh, emotion that Sinatra wanted to impart. So when you when you think about what made Sinatra's music so great and so lasting, it is as simple as it spoke to people, and it is as complicated as it was so well-crafted and well-thought-out. No detail was was left, you know, uh, to, 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 to chance. It was all wonderfully planned and executed. And, and you hit the nail right on the head there. I mean, I think it's it's pretty much impossible to be neutral about Frank Sinatra. Like, he makes you feel things. And, and what's the point of listening to music if it doesn't make us feel anything? I think invariably, you know, all of Sinatra's records, even a lot of the, the bad ones, the ones that, that are not on the same level uh, as some of his, of his other works, you know, they always make you feel something. Definitely. And, and, and now, you know, I also have to say that we, we need to go back to where uh, everything starts, and that's with Frank's voice itself. Right. And his own musical intuition. You know, it's, it's almost impossible, and, and I've spent a long time trying to think of a way to explain why Frank Sinatra's voice is so compelling. And, you know, I can do it. I've tried to do it. I don't know if I've been successful because I don't know if you can explain it because it's one of these things that is truly a phenomena. He was not a musician that, you know, was a child prodigy that sat at the piano and played and knew music, couldn't read music, didn't learn how to play an instrument, except for the banjo, which, you know, uh, most people will, you know, fool around with and, and have fun with, not the, ban- the banjo, I'm sorry, the... Um, ukulele. But he also really was not a trained singer. It's not like he went to school for voice the way a lot of, uh, you know, music students do today. Uh, not that any of the other vocalists that, that he came up with did the, the Nat Coles, the Tony Bennis, the Perry Comos, all of them had natural talent. Frank just had this incredible musical intuition without being trained, without being a musician or a trained vocalist. He heard things in the music that no one else really heard, not even some of the songwriters and arrangers that worked on these charts. So Frank had this innate musical ability and perception that just comes from nature, right? The second thing he had was this amazing voice. Now, it wasn't a perfect voice. He himself acknowledged that there were other better technical singers and he wasn't wrong for some reason he was blessed with this natural instrument and when i say natural when you listen to frank sinatra what's what's fascinating is that his voice just sounds so right it just sounds like a voice should sound effortless yeah it's effortless but i can't explain why it just sounds like it belongs like it's so comfortable it's just the way a voice that's singing this music should sound. Now, you know, I don't feel that's, I mean, I feel the same way about a lot of the other vocalists, but there's just something about Frank where 
it's like his voice was was born to kiss a lyric. Hmm. And, and, and I can't explain why. And he knew what to do with it. He had that innate sense to know what to do with it. He certainly did. <laughs> he certainly did. You know, it all came together. I mean, so, the, you know, the, these are, con, you know, convoluted answers. But, you know, I, I want people to understand that, you know, this guy just didn't walk up to a microphone and open his mouth and start, you know, warbling. He, he developed and, and worked very hard to create this style that no one else really had. You know, he was the first guy to really to, to use his voice as an instrument and, and, and go from phrase to phrase with no perceptible break. He was one of the first vocalists, uh, other than Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby, to say, hey, wait a minute, I could take the way Mabel Mercer uh, you know, used to, uh, uh, craft her inflection and, and craft her diction. And I can, at the same time, even though that's a very crisp, you know, staid way of doing things, I can give it this off the cuff, you know, a uh, little bit of energy and feel by, uh, using Billy Holiday's way of, you know, toying with the, the, the lyric line by, you know, staying just ahead of or behind the beat by a fraction of a second to give it some, some spontaneity. That's brilliant. I mean, you know, you either sing like Mabel Mercer in which it's very staid and every, every, you know, every consonant, every, every, everything she did was so crisp and closed off and it was wonderful, but that was her style. She was not Billie Holiday. Now, if you listen to Billie Holiday, you know, she would round out the end of a note and it wasn't so crisp, her diction, but her timing was just impeccable. Frank was able to blend those in, in a beautiful way. I don't think anybody was able to do that except Louis Armstrong. I mean, really, really hit that, that, that perfect, you know, combination of phrasing in terms of the actual words and the the rhythm the the inner rhythm of the vocal you know as he went along measure to measure just 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 it just astounds me it, it, yeah. you yeah, know it's, it's truly astounding and it, i want to go back to something briefly that you said before about convoluted answers and and you know trying your best to convey in writing what this music means and what it's about and and where it comes from and and i totally commiserate with you there there's this great line i think it's by the comedian martin mull who said that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> so you, 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 can, you can try your best. I almost called this podcast dancing about architecture actually, but I thought that would be too obscure and people wouldn't get it. But it's, it's so hard because, you know, there's music is, is, you know, it's corny to call it the universal language, but it is. And, and it's, it is a language unto itself that you can't quite access with English or any other language. So I, I, I can commiserate with your struggle. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm going to take this in a, a little different direction um, I, I like the music of Shostakovich. I tend to like, oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he was an amazing composer and, um, so, so, uh, when you speak of talk about effortless to me, you know, it's just, he's so, some of that music that he's written is so complicated, but it's just, it just rolls and, and, and just unfolds beautifully. Uh, I tend to like the darker composers a lot of russian music i love stravinsky yeah those angsty russians eh? they're all so dark yeah. and brooding and, well, yeah i think this is why i have such a, a love for gordon jenkins 
You know, mm-hmm. well, listen, Gordon reminds me of two people who I love musically. Bernard Herrmann, the great film composer, and Shostakovich, because I hear these elements, these long string phrases. And it's just so, to me, it's so effective. It, it just gives me a whole different feeling than I get from any of those other records. Uh, Frank was absolutely right. Gordon Jenkins was the perfect contrast to what he was doing with Nelson and Billy and the other people. So you can't doubt that Frank knew better than anyone. And it is pleasing. It's pleasing, pleasing music. But I was listening to Shostakovich's um, Leningrad symphony. So this was written, you know, out of the angst of war and the, 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 you know, the decimation of a land and, and a culture and, you know, social chaos and, You know, I said to myself, he has painted this picture so beautifully that even though I am so far removed from what he's writing about, he's trying to musically express this whole devastation, you know, during the war, I felt like I was there. Hmm. And, 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 you know, I don't know how you articulate that other than to say it that way. When Sinatra sings in the wee small hours of the morning, you know, in my mind, I'm picturing, you know, a rainy night where the, where the pavement is wet and, and, you know, there's a certain dampness in the air and, you know, there's just this overarching feeling of loneliness. Well, you know, how do you, how do you write about that? You just have to listen to it and feel it and, and just revel in the fact that people like Frank Sinatra and Gordon Jenkins and Nelson Riddle, and so many others. And of course, the songwriters who wrote these amazing songs, you know, because it's poetry, it's their poetry, and their original melody that is allowing us to, to, you know, to, 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 you know, conjure up these pictures in our mind. You know, we just have to be, be really thankful that, that they were so perfect at their craft. And because it's, it's enhanced, my life tremendously, and I'm sure it's enhanced your life and the lives of your listeners. Oh, immeasurably, immeasurably. I, I shudder to think about a life without music. That's that's not a world that I would like to to live in. Me too. Someone asked me not long ago if I had to lose one sense, what would it be? And you know, as much as I am a very visual person, um, I would never want to lose my hearing. I, I think I would die if I lost my hearing. And, you know, I I think the great thing, and I'm sure you feel this, Zach, is that uh, music is color and you can visualize color in music. So, you know, my feeling is I love the color blue and I love the color red and orange and green. But if I couldn't see them again, I could still visualize them through music. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. And it's powerful to be able to say that, you know, something like music could affect you, uh, your senses so strongly affect you in, in, in a, 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 a psycho visual way. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't actually see it. You can imagine it because you're moved by that particular melody, that chord, the way it was, you know, configured. Certainly. Just m- music is magic. What it a, really is. what a great, great note to conclude on Chuck Granada. It's always such a pleasure talking to you. I could I could geek out with you about Sinatra just all day. Um, before well, I be, yeah, let's do it again. That would be let's, great. I love, I love talking with you, and you know I, I love getting into these great conversations because uh, 
hopefully uh, it makes people think about the music a little differently and just listen to it a little differently. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're welcome back anytime. That would be terrific. Before I let you go, what are you working on right now? What, what is sort of 2016 uh, contained for you? Well, uh, 2016 will bring, hopefully, uh, well, it definitely will bring a new book about and with Johnny Mandel, the great uh, arranger, uh, composer, a songwriter, producer, Oscar winner for The Shadow of Your Smile, uh, the arranger for Sinatra's Ring-A-Ding-Ding album. He's worked with everyone from Streisand and Bennett, Sinatra, Diana Krall, Shirley Horn. I mean, just, just an amazing man. Johnny Mandel is 90 years old, and he and I are just finishing up his memoir. And the other book that I'm working on, which I hope will be here in 2016, but may not come till the following year, is a Sinatra listening guide, where I can kind of um, analyze in a, in a very readable and enjoyable and digestible way the, the kind of stuff we're talking about and, and explain to people, the layman, why certain albums are important and what they should listen for. I can't wait to read it. That sounds thanks great. Thanks so much. Yeah, they're going to be great projects. Thanks, Zach. Well, thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, and I, I look forward to coming back again. I've got you under my skin I've got you in the heart of me So deep in my heart That you're really a part of me I've got you Under my skin I tried so Not to give in I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Chuck Granada. Uh, as you can probably tell, I certainly did. I, I love talking to Chuck, and I'm a massive Sinatra fan, so this stuff is, is just a lot of fun for me. I'm including at the, at the very end of this episode a bonus clip of my chat with Chuck Granada where I ask Chuck about what he sees as the essential Sinatra recordings. I think you'll find it very interesting, and you probably don't want to miss it. So stick around to the very end. Um, when I asked Chuck about what he sees as the essential Sinatra albums. But first, I'd like to remind you that if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to hear more, the absolute best way you can help me out is by subscribing on iTunes and leaving a rating and review. So if you haven't already, please take a minute and do that. It would really mean a lot to me. And a quick reminder that if you'd like to learn more about Chuck and his work, please visit his personal website at chuckgranada.com. Other than that, thank you as always for listening. I can't tell you how much your support means to me. And here's the rest of my conversation with Sinatra expert Chuck Granada. I'd sacrifice anything come what might for the sake of having Well, let's let's talk about favorites for a moment. This is something I'm always eager to dive into with people like you. Say someone listening to this this program who maybe has Sinatra's greatest hits, something like that, but they want to go deeper. What, what would you recommend as the ideal starting point for going deeper into Sinatra? You know, like the one essential Sinatra album, which is a tough question, but I'm, I'm eager to hear you take it on. Well, I think, I think you would have to say, you'd have to pick two albums, really. You, you'd have to pick a, a ballad album and you'd have to pick a swing album. So for my ballad album, and and believe me this 
Zach, is one of the hardest things to do is is to narrow this down to a favorite or what's the definitive. Because with a guy like Sinatra, whose career spanned, uh, you know, 60 years and, you know, uh, hundreds of albums and, and so many different contexts, you know, there's four different Sinatras, really, uh, you know, through the through the years, four different periods and they all have a distinctly different sound but if you really had to boil it down to the two definitive records i would say in the we small hours from 1955 for the ballad album and i i say songs for swing and lovers from 1956 for the swing album i mean these records were models of their kind they absolutely showcase sinatra at 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 the peak of his career and they, they illustrate his vocal sweet spot. I mean, when you listen to in the wee small hours and you concentrate on Frank's vocal in terms of its quality and its characteristics, I don't think there was ever more color and, and, and warmth of tone and, and range in his voice, it's just all there. The, the way he bends the notes and the way he inflects and colors the, the, you know, the phrasing is just exquisite. I think that was the moment. I think you, you could say that that album represents the sweet spot. And then, of course, you know, just uh, nine months later, he did Songs for Swing and Lovers. Now, you know, Nancy and I have had this discussion, too. Uh, Songs for Swingin' Lovers had a follow-up album, A Swingin' Affair. And the truth is that A Swingin' Affair has just a little bit more sparkle, a little bit more lift. It's almost as if by the time he recorded A Swingin' Affair, which was within the year after Songs for Swingin' Lovers, he, he kind of just settled into the perfect formula in terms of where does my vocal sit in this big band and, and, and can I notch the tempo up just a little bit? And Nelson had kind of perfected that, that whole sound already, you know, because that, that sound was developed for Frank, you know, the, the bass trombone, uh, played by George Roberts, who by the way, was playing the bass trombone melodically, which was never really done. Uh, you know, uh, Harry Edison playing the Harmon mute trumpet, uh, that beautiful sustained uh, string pad that floated above and gave it this this beautiful joyous lift, you know, all of those musical metaphors and and textures and sounds that became the Sinatra Riddle sound were conscientiously developed between 1954 and 1956. So the first time that we really hear it. And we hear this, this amazing new sound from Frank where you, you had to say, oh, my gosh, this, this is perfect with Songs for Swingin' Lovers, which gave us such uh, a phenomenal uh, classics as I've Got You Under My Skin and Too Marvelous for Words and You Make Me Feel So Young and Swingin' Down the Lane and on and on. And then, of course, he completed that and, and brought it to its greatest potential with a swing and affair just a few months later. So, but I would say that 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 songs for swing and lovers and in the wee small hours are the two definitive Sinatra records of all time. <laughs> 